Good morning. Look at this. Is this record low? I predicted a record low this morning. Or because of the time change, perhaps a record high. Like people show up for worship and say, oh, it's class time. Yeah, let's go. Most of those people are drinking coffee downstairs. Though. They're like, no, let's just sit here and talk. It, is it really? Uh, I'm just going to rock on. It's good to be back with y'all. I've been, I feel so... Uh, MIA in this class I, I you know I had I, th- I think I, last time I taught it was on uh, Jack Kennedy and then I was supposed to teach on Jim Lawson which I did a lot of preparation for and looked really forward to I actually got to see him speak you know the week before and uh, and then uh, because of my brother's illness and uh, death I, w- I wasn't able to to be with you guys but I appreciate all a lot many of you have reached out and offered condolences and prayers and thoughts and I'm really thankful for that. It's been a trying and um, interesting uh, couple of weeks for for sure for our family. So, But, and now uh, next week is last week so I've kind of I found a new you know thing. It's like yeah I'll be glad to help teach that class and then show up once <laughs> and it's oh no I've got this other thing. I'd love to be with you but I uh, can't, yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I'm sad that I meant the times I've been here with both Preston and David taught just blessings to me and, and caused me further investigation and research on some of these people we've studied. I, I think it's an important concept. I, I was, you know, I was a little bit weary, uh, not only with what I'm talking about this morning, but also just the concept of, you know, spending time talking about other voices that we don't think about as having uh, influence on us. But the truth is, um, it, if we're paying attention, if we have our eyes open and are fully alive to life, uh, God is speaking everywhere. God is speaking through voices we normally would shut out um, if we had a really narrow view of God working in the cosmos. But I think it's important to remind ourselves, even in the specifics of some of the people that we've talked about, Maybe they don't resonate with us, and maybe we go home thinking, you know, why in the world do we spend time talking about, Jack, you know, Jack Kennedy? But I think if you are tune, if you tune your ears, if we're really tuning our ears to to uh, to Creator and cosmic God, uh, then we hear uh, God's voice in other humans. And at the end of the day, no matter how much we disagree or don't understand the views and the life and lives of other human beings they we still have more in common with them than we have different with them and that's an important thing to remind ourselves of uh, and to kind of live in that truth especially uh, during times of great division like we have in our country now this morning I, I tried every way I could to get out of talking about Thomas Jefferson uh, and you can, both Eric and Preston will attest to that. I did not want to talk about Thomas Jefferson, but I, <clears throat> there's lots of reasons behind that. One is that I can honestly say that I know Thomas Jefferson better than I know members of my own family. I can truthfully say that. And I, I don't, not my wife, not my kids, in some ways my parents perhaps, because I, I knew a lot of Jefferson's secrets. I don't know a lot of my parents' secrets, you know, or maybe I don't, I don't, you never know. 
But I have lived kind of in the mind and the life of Thomas Jefferson uh, in some deep ways over the past uh, seven or eight years. And I feel like, I know, in fact, I dreamed last night that I came, I was telling my daughter on the way to church, I dreamed last night that I showed up at church today with nothing. Like I'd forgotten my laptop, I'd forgotten any notes I had, my books, the timeline, all those things. And I had showed up and just sit scrant. I asked Eric, it's like, man, can you, I've got to go back home. And I went back home and all the stuff was scattered. Nothing was printed out. And so I had that, I didn't, obviously dreams are not what dreams are about. Never, you know, so it's about some other scattered part of my life. <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> uh, but, uh, but then I told her this morning, I said, I think this is maybe the only class and the only person I could talk about, maybe even uh, uh, including Jesus, uh, which I don't know what that means, but where I could show up with absolutely nothing and talk for two or three hours. I just feel like I know Jefferson that well, um, if, if, especially if you gave me some leeway on some dates. But... Anyway, this is a five-minute, the five, first five minutes of the Ken Burns uh, documentary, or kind of mini-documentary on Thomas Jefferson. I think it's a really good, uh, I, I love it. My mentor, Clay Jenkinson, who is one of the top Jefferson scholars um, and a dear friend of mine, is, is in this. He doesn't narrate the first part of this, but uh, I think it's a... Would it Yes, I, it would bother me greatly. I, I, this speaker it has to stay here, dear. No, I'm, just I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I was just joshing you. All right. There's an interesting story and he encounters uh, a man he terms a respectable stranger and he engages in a conversation at some length with the stranger first they talk about mechanical operations and he's certain that the man is a uh, an engineer of some sort. Then they move on to matters of agriculture, and he thinks this is, in his words, a large farmer. Finally, they talk about religion, and he's certain that the man is a clergyman like himself. The hour gets late, and they go to bed, and uh, the next morning he arises and speaks with the innkeeper and asks for the stranger he had seen the night before. And he describes him, and the innkeeper says, why don't you know that was Thomas Jefferson?
the hand down, hand down. He is the greatest enigma among major figures in American history. I think we're attracted to him in part because of his mysterious character. If, uh, if he were a monument, he would be the Sphinx. Uh, if he were a painting, he would be the Mona Lisa. If he were uh, a character in a play, it would be Hamlet. He was a fan, a violinist, a writer, a surveyor, a scientist, a lover of fine wines, and a restless architect who could never quite bring himself to finish his own house. He was a reluctant politician with a voice so soft he could barely make himself heard from the podium. But he helped to found America's first political party. He denounced the moral bankruptcy he saw in Europe, but delighted in the gilded salons of Paris. He was a statesman who was twice elected president of the United States but did not think his presidency worth listing among the achievements on his gravestone. He was a lifelong champion of small government who took it upon himself to more than double the size of his country. He endured the loss of nearly everything he held dear, but somehow never lost his faith in the future. He distilled a century of enlightenment thinking into one remarkable sentence, which began, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Yet he owned more than 200 human beings and never saw fit to free them. Thomas Jefferson was a shadow man, said John Adams. His character was like the great rivers, whose bottoms we cannot see and make no noise. He remained a puzzle, even to those who thought they knew him best, embodied contradictions common to the country, whose independence it fell to him to proclaim, and words whose precise meaning Americans have debated ever since. Yes. <laughs> so the best thing I can recommend is just go and uh, get that documentary, rest, watch the rest of it, and you'll be, you'll be fine on Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> Ken Burns, as always, uh, never pulls any punches. Yeah, he does it with this documentary. It's a mini. It's only a couple hours, but it's, um, it's probably the best film work ever on Thomas Jefferson. Yes. Well, John F. Kennedy at a dinner, a state dinner, uh, I think the story you're talking about said uh, there was a gathering of, of world leaders and kind of uh, great minds. And um, it was in the East Room, I guess, and he stood up and said, this is the greatest gathering of intellectual power since Thomas Jefferson ate breakfast here alone. <laughs> it's a really famous Kennedy. Kennedy was a big... Student at Lincoln, probably the best 
deepest student of Jefferson. Uh, so I, I guess I can I would, I, maybe just start just to give a brief timeline. The reason I like that introduction because it is um, it kind of embodies in five minutes the reason I'm so drawn to Thomas Jefferson. Uh, there are things for me personally, the fact that he's a, really the American da Vinci's, the only true Renaissance man uh, kind of in American history, the, the, the person that we can hold up and say, you know, literally say this, this was our da Vinci, um, or maybe this was our Newton, um, you know, our, our John Locke. Um, and I'm drawn to anyone who says yes emphatically to everything in life. He, he said one time that I've taken, um, uh, I've taken all knowledge under my providence. In other words, I, everything that you can know, uh, that's what I want to know. Uh, and, and you can imagine at the end, uh, in the middle and the end of the 18th century, it was actually possible to know everything just about there was to know in terms of science, uh, in terms of uh, medicine uh, and philosophy and all of that. And so I'm drawn to Jefferson because of his curiosity um, I don't know what number he would be on the Enneagram, but he had some strong five in him, uh, which I am. He's a, he's a five. Yeah, he's a deep investigator, a researcher. Has to not just know about something, has to know everything about it. Poured himself into everything that he ever did. There's a story that, <clears throat> my, my, again, my mentor and, and good friend Clay Jenkinson, who's a Jefferson scholar, I had dinner with him one night and I said, and we both fancy ourselves, you know, pretend Renaissance men. And I said, what is the difference between a Renaissance man and a dilettante? Which is a word that kind of used to have some, uh, some validity in terms of good. Now is used more of a, you know, as a negative term. But I said, what's the difference between those two? And he told this story about beyond, you know, the $25 tour, uh, you know, Mon Monticello looks like it's one story, but it's actually one and a half story. And up kind of the half stairwell, uh, as you're turning, there's a window in that stairwell. And he said, <clears throat> you, can, uh, you can take two fingers and push the bottom of that window and it just opens up like a flower. And he said, then you push it in another place and it closes up and seals completely. Jefferson designed that window he designed all the windows there. He said, now, if you gave you or I $5,000 and said, do all the due diligence and research and design a window for that space, he said, we could come up with something functional. You know, Jefferson created a masterpiece, and he did that with everything he did. Um, and so <clears throat> I, I'm drawn to someone um, like that. The reason that introduction and, and really the deeper reason I'm drawn to Thomas Jefferson is that he is the perfect picture of the American paradox for me. Uh, what it means to talk about what it means to be an American in the paradoxical sense. Um, the f and, and you noticed every, he was, you know, he he coined the most important phrase. He wrote the most 35 most important words in terms of liberty, maybe in history, in terms of a secular history. Um, 
but he owned uh, two, over 200 slaves in his lifetime, bought and sold and traded more than that, and never during his lifetime freed a slave. In fact, most of his slaves were sold off uh, upon his death to, to pay his massive personal debt off, which would equal about six to $11 million of our uh, money when he died. Terribly irresponsible financially, personally. One of the most fiscally responsible presidents in history. He, ha he made the, took the national debt uh, to half of what it was when he took office. And part of that was because of the Louisiana Purchase, of course. He probably would have wiped out all of the national debt during his two terms as president. Where did he not have to pay Napoleon six cents an acre for half the country? <laughs> so that was a good. So I want to run through a quick timeline just to remind you there's a few uh, about the, and along the way I'll talk about some of these achievements and then maybe we can just talk about. Uh, what Jefferson says to us today or what could Jefferson say to us as humans, Americans, and believers uh, today. So he was born in 1743 in Ar uh, Shadwell, Albemarle County, Virginia, in and around the Charlottesburg area, those of you who have visited. Um, his father, Peter Jefferson, died when he was 14 years old, and he was kind of uh, given over to the care of, of uh, one of his uncles, his mother is still living, but just in terms of his education and raising um, his uncle. Uh, 1760, at the age of 17, he, uh, he was tutored and kind of homeschooled uh, by priests and clergy and people like that. Uh, up until the time he was 17, he went to William and Mary in um, uh, Williamsburg. Uh, age of 19, 1762, began to study law with George Wythe. He was one of the premier uh, lawyers in America at the time, uh, and specifically a, a really strong political figure in um, colonial uh, Virginia. Uh, he was admitted to practice law in 1767. Again, when he's um, 21, 22 years old, he's practicing law. He wasn't a very good lawyer. Uh, wasn't didn't make he's an excellent writer but not a very good orator like, like the documentary said we don't know exactly obviously what he sounded like but he it, he had a reedy voice that was really weak kind of a womanish even voice or at least that's how Hamilton <laughs> described his voice uh, he was elected to the House of Burgesses which was the, of course the you know colonial legislative making body uh, in 1768 at the age of 25, which was a big deal because most of the guys there, Patrick Henry, a lot of the, you know, House of Burgess was older. He was definitely by far the youngest member of the House of Burgess when he was elected, uh, but they respected him deeply. Uh, he was really quiet, um, but he would, he would do, he was great at drafting bills, drafting legislation, and then backroom kind of talking. He was really good at that. Uh, got married in 1772. Uh, to Martha Wells Skelting, who was a very wealthy widow, um, and he inherited a lot of slaves. Jefferson, obviously, his first memory, he said his first memory was being carried on a pillow by a slave at the age of four years old. His father had, you know, slaves, like, he, he was part of the Virginia plantation system, which could not function, did not function without the use of African slaves at the time. That's what propagated slavery in America was the plantation system, of course, and he was part of that. Uh, but the, the vast number of slaves that Jefferson 
owned during his lifetime, he inherited. He came by through inheritance. Uh, he did buy and sell slaves, but he, he, he got most of them through both his father and his father-in-law. His father-in-law had 200 slaves himself that Jefferson inherited, at, along with a ton of land. Uh, so he married Martha, 1772. Um, the age of 30 in 1774, he wrote summary, uh, summary View of the Rights of British America, which is what made him famous among his contemporaries. Uh, it was just, it's a long, it's kind of a pre-declaration of independence. It's saying, here are the rights uh, that we have as humans, that the relationship that we have with George III in England is purely voluntary. We, we are happy to have that relationship, but it's voluntary. There, there's no God-ordained um, ruling scenario uh, that goes on, which was a radical thing to say as British subjects at the time. It was kind of a precursor to the Jack Declaration of Independence. 1775, he was elected to the first uh, or the second Continental Congress. Actually, he was elected as an alternate. Uh, the guy who was really the, the Continental Congress representative had a family emergency, so Jefferson only ended up there as an alternate. He was very quiet. He never said anything during the whole different deliberations. But he was 33 years old. His writings, not only kind of in the House of Burgess, uh, but mostly the Summer Review, British rights, made him really respected. And so as a passing thought during the deliberations, in between the time that they decided to, to go back and from, to the individual colonies and get permission to declare independence, uh, they formed a committee to actually write a declaration, and it kind of got thrown off to, to Jefferson. Just a, they knew he could write. B, was a Virginian. Uh, Virginia was the biggest, most powerful state, uh, and it, it, it was either Jefferson or Adams. And Adams said, "I got too much other stuff to do, and also you're a better writer than me," which was a big deal for John Adams to say anything good about anybody else. But so it passed to Jefferson. Jefferson rented a little room on a little desk and, and wrote basically the, the most famous, again, most famous document in American history in terms of an ascent. The, the, the Declaration of Independence, you know, says what it, how you become American. Uh, the Constitution says here, you know, here are rules, here are things that govern who we are. The Declaration of Independence is an ascent. It embodies what it means to, to, to have the character of an American. And um, anyway, there's a big difference between those two documents that I could talk about a lot. 1777, uh, Jefferson wrote uh, the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom or Religious Liberty, and he considered that uh, his best work. Um, so Jefferson and religion, uh, and Jefferson came from, you know, he had an Anglican Episcopal backgrounds like everyone else in, in colonial American did. Uh, but he was really hard on the church, really hard on esta uh, English establish the establishment of religion. He talked a lot about priests and superstition and people being corrupted and subject to the corruption of organized religion. 
he had a really good point in the end of the 18th century. You know, the church, and you know anything about the church, both, you know, uh, from early, early on, uh, medieval church, you know, in England, all the way through, you know, the split and the uh, Reformation. Uh, and, and the Anglican church still had a, a, a large degree of both intertwining nationalism. You know, the king and the church were kind of one. Uh, and there was still a, a lot of, of corruption. Uh, Jefferson was a huge Enlightenment, uh, European Enlightenment guy, which was all about reason, it was all about uh, science. Uh, I, I can only believe what I can prove. And so his, he had a simultaneous kind of disgust and suspicion about anything metaphysical. And at the same time, he was his Anglophobia. He hated England and the English government and the king and the system so bad that he threw in religion with that. And so a lot of times when people talk about, you know, Jefferson hated religion, he hated the church, a lot of that is wrapped up in his hatred for England um, or his distaste for England. And he believed deeply in the freedom of the mind to decide when it came to God. Jefferson was never an atheist, never claimed to be an atheist, was never an atheist. He was a deist, which uh, classical deist, which means he, he thought God, there's a creator God, it's obvious in nature and study and science, it's obvious that there's a creator God. This creator God is out to lunch currently, we'll be back later you know maybe didn't believe he believed jesus was the greatest moral teacher of all time believed that if we did what jesus said and taught we would be great and that's what we should all do did not believe jesus was uh divine did not believe in the resurrections did not believe in most of the miracles anyway i he thought uh on his tombstone he said thomas jefferson author of the Declaration of Independence, author of the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, uh, founder of the University of Virginia. Those are the three things on his tombstone, which again, excludes President of the United States and a lot of other things, inventor and copyright holder and lots of other things that he did. Invented modern archeology, span uh, invented the coinage system of America, uh, Dewey Decimal System, whatever, <laughs> he did a lot. But those were the three things. So, oh, Brad, yeah, yeah. So the thing is, you talk about that people believe in this idea. Yes. Using your mind to decide. Yes. So if people using their mind and they decided on religion, did you think that their thinking was wrong, or you think that's okay? No, no. He would never. He was never that pretentious. Uh, in fact, he was always. Again, the. Jefferson is, Jefferson is the model of civility and tolerance, not just tolerance, but inclusion, which again, I think is something that we can learn from, from Jefferson. And e even among his peers, which was, that was the order of the day, was civility uh, and uh, inclusion and tolerance and all of that, for the most respect, among gentlemen. Jefferson thought, that's the way he thought about everybody. Of course, we'll get to slavery in a second. Yeah, right, exactly. Which again, he, Jefferson was also very much a man of his time. Um, but he wasn't. Uh, so let me read, I just want to read a little bit. Uh, if you've never read uh, the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, uh, 
he wrote that in 1777, but it didn't actually get passed in Virginia for 10 years because people just were, uh, the, the, the power of the church, the state and church in colonial America is so much stronger than even any of us remember. Uh, the Baptists were being persecuted. In, in fact, anybody other than Episcopal or the, the, church, the English church in America was, couldn't hold office, couldn't own land in a lot of cases, could not vote or participate. It, the, uh, until you really go back and look at how oppressive state religion was in America, not in England, but in America, uh, for, for a lot of time, uh, you, you don't, can't really grasp the importance of this statue, which this, what he, his work here, uh, Madison, he, Jefferson never could get it through past. Madison is the one who got that done in Virginia. And then of course, Madison implemented a lot of what is in this statute into the United States constitution. And our idea of religious separation of church and state comes primarily from this work that Jefferson did in 1777. So let me read just a little bit of this. It's not long, but I won't read the whole thing, but section one, well aware that the opinions and beliefs of men depend not on their own will, but follow involuntarily the evidence proposed to their minds that almighty God has created the mind free and manifested his supreme will that free it shall remain by making it altogether insusceptible of restraint that all attempts to influence it by temporal punishments or burdens or by civil incapacitations tend only to begot habits of hypocrisy and meanness and are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion who being lord both of body and mind yet chose not to propagate it by coercions on either as was in his almighty power to do, but to extend it by its influence on reason alone, that the impious presumption of legislators and rulers, civil as well as ecclesiastical, who being themselves but fallible and uninspired men, have assumed dominion over the faith of others, setting up their own opinions and modes of thinking as the only true and infallible, and as such, endeavoring to impose them on others has established and then maintained false religions over the greatest part of the world and through all time. That to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves or abhors is sinful and tyrannical. And even the forcing him to support this or that teacher of his own religious persuasion is depriving him of the comfortable liberty of giving his contributions to the particular pastor whose morals he would make his pattern and whose powers he feels most persuasive to righteousness and is withdrawing from the ministry those temporary rewards which proceeding from an aberration uh, of their personal conduct, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he's basically saying this is what's happened. You know, people, and the other thing is that, you know, people were, part of people's tax money went to support the church at the time. He's saying you can't ask in a free government, in a free mind, you can't ask someone to give money to support a religion that they don't believe, right? And anyway, he lays out the groundwork, uh, sorry. Um, Section 2, which is the actual law, he said, We, the General Assembly of Virginia, do enact that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, 
or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested, and uh, burdened in his body or goods, nor shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess by argument or to maintain their opinions in matters of religion, and that the same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their uh, civil capacities. In other words, you can believe what you want to as strong as you want to believe it or believe nothing at all. And what you believe or what you don't believe should have no merit in terms of the civil government. That was a radical statement uh, in 1777. So fast forward uh, to 1802, Jefferson's second year as president. The Constitution's already been, uh, of course, written and ratified, including religious freedom as kind of was birthed in his document here. So the Baptist of Dan, the Baptist Association of Danbury, Connecticut wrote him a letter and asked him to personally clarify what it means, what religious freedom means in the Constitution. And he wrote him back this letter, uh, or parts of it. Thank you for writing the letter or whatever. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislature should make, and he quotes the Constitution, make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Jefferson's original draft said, thus uh, enacting an eternal wall of separation of church and state. The phrase separation of church and state came from this letter to the Dan Danbury's uh, Baptists. And they were writing him, and when, <laughs> when he sent them that letter, then he invited them to the White House later uh, the following year. They came and presented him with the largest wheel of cheese in history. <laughs> this was their thing. They were so thankful that he clarified the separation of church and state because they were still being persecuted. And he said, Could, can you tell us again what it means to be an American in the context of religion? Uh, which is something the, you know, that opposite happens now. You know, a lot of, you know, a lot of Christians say, you know, we're a Christian government. You know, we were established as a Christian nation. And Jefferson, uh, here you have a Christian group saying thank you for affirming the fact that we are not a Christian nation and that the religion of the government cannot uh, impose on our individual beliefs. So, in other words, the, the government has no religion. Yeah, that block of cheese stayed around for like six years. It was a big deal. They gave it to him, but then he felt compelled to write them a check for $200 because he couldn't accept it. It would look bad. <laughs> it makes sense. So they would bring it out during state. You know, it was, hey, bring the cheese out. And they would just cut off the bad part, you know, to get to that. I mean, it was, lit it was 1,600 pounds. It's still, I think, the largest heap of cheese in history. Uh, yeah. So anyway, 1777, that's a big, that's a really important time, the Virginia Statue of Religious Liberty. Yeah. I was going to ask you, are you, I know we're kind of getting towards the end of the class. Uh, that's insane. How can we be at the end? Yes. Yeah. So, 
the kind of the genesis that happened in 1803 again or 1803 1804 which was the end of his first term he had uh joseph he and joseph Priestley had had this ongoing um uh correspondence about you know hey you should take the bible and you know take take the stuff that's superstition and you know put this kind of your own bible together and of course it was never phrased like that and the jefferson bible what we know now is the jefferson bible which is this life and morals uh life and teaching moral life and teachings of jesus of nazareth by thomas jefferson was never meant to be published it was never a uh he was never trying to say this is what the bible should say it was a personal devotional exercise that he did he basically took a greek which of course he read original greek latin uh, an English Bible. He had them all three, and he just had a razor blade, and he would cut parts out and put it in, in his commonplace book. Uh, and basically took the teaching, the moral teachings, and kind of the narrative of Jesus's life, and left out all the miracles, and the resurrection, and all that, except for one, which is really important. When he left in the raising of Jairus's daughter. That's the only miracle in the Jefferson Bible. By this time, Jefferson had lost six children, many of them by the time they were four years old. In fact, he only had one child of seven that uh, lived as long as he did. And he did that, I think, because he needed a sliver of hope. And if you read, the best thing I could recommend to you for Jefferson uh, would be Jefferson uh, did not, he never wrote a book. He, Notes on the State of Virginia is considered a book, but it was really an answer to a bunch of questions somebody in France asked. Never wrote an autobiography or anything like that. What Jefferson did is write 22,000 letters, which all still exist. He wrote more than that, but he burned his correspondence between he and his mother and mostly he and his wife. He thought it was too personal, but he knew that his legacy would be his correspondence, so he preserved it. And you can read them all, and it's really the best way to know kind of the mind and what's going on with Jefferson is to read. I would start with the Jefferson Adams letters, which are two volumes, um, probably the best correspondence in American history. They, it was, you know, they had a great relationship, were friends early on, um, Continental Congress and all that. Then they were deep enemies. The election of 1800 was like, very much like the election cycle we're having now. It was called the Second American Revolution, and you talk about nasty. That was where political parties were formed, and when they formed, they were as far apart ideologically as, as we are now, and it was nasty, and it's, you know, everything old is new again. So they literally hated each other until the mid-18-teens, after Jefferson had already retired, after Adams retired, John Quincy had become president, they began to write to one another, and it, they renewed their friendship. And it was one of, it's, some, it's some of the most beautiful and intellectual correspondence in, in American history, so I would recommend that. Then I would recommend Joseph Ellis's book, American Sphinx. Uh, Merrill Peterson's book, Thomas Jefferson and the New Nation, is probably the, the next I would recommend. But anyway, the Jefferson Bible, again, <clears throat> it's interesting in that, yeah, it's like the perfect enlightenment view of religion. And here's, I do want to say that, though, the, and, you know, again, we could get, I haven't even talked about Jefferson and slavery, which is kind of makes the paradox, you know, that Jefferson really is, embodies, uh, 
not just the American paradox, but the human paradox, that we are all capable of unbelievable ascent and greatness and total inhumanity and cruelty. And sometimes within the same moments, we're capable of that. That's true for each and every one of us. And it seems to be uh, really resonant with Jefferson's character. And I, I really do believe what Jefferson has to offer us is, uh, as, as Americans, is to really understand what it means, what's going on at Donald Trump rallies, you know, to really understand what that is, you start with Thomas Jefferson. And, and you can, if you get there and live with that for a little while, it really gives perspective on what is happening. Now, in terms of belief and, and kind of the enlightenment intrusion and on religion, I think what Jefferson did is, he try, you know, as part of the European enlightenment was to try to recover what was authentic about religion what was authentic uh, because it had become so corrupt and distorted he was really interested in the teachings of jesus really interested in those moral things but he threw the baby out with the bathwater, which the enlightenment did to religion and what we're what we see now is uh the result of that i think the reason there's so much superficiality in kind of american evangelical and mainline churches is because Kind of the DNA of the Enlightenment was to say, to compartmentalize religion and life and citizenship. He said, these are all separate things. I can live my American life in one way with a certain, num certain kinds of goals and propositions and rights. And then here is my religion over here, uh, which is important to say these prayers and to do these things and identify with these issues, but these two things are separate. That is completely opposite of first century Christianity, the idea, the Jewish idea of these things. And by the way, also completely unlike every other world religion. That's why we don't understand Islam very well, because we think how could how could what you're doing politically and the way you see the world politically and geopolitically, how can it be so insane? And it's because those two things, and you think, okay, that's, that's really bad, you know. But the fact is, if, our, if we treated our belief system and our religion as they did in terms of intertwining what we believe and how it plays out in our actual lives over here, uh, then Christianity in America would look a lot different than it does now. Anyway, my point is that that the kind of Jefferson and the Enlightenment view of religion has resulted in a really co confused uh, idea about what how religion plays out in life and the intermingling of the whole you know of, of nationalism. What it means to be an American has to do with what it means to be a Christian. All that confusion. Uh, that results in some really weird stuff uh, in the church and in the country, I think happened because of the overreach of the Enlightenment thinking about religion. You can't reduce religion down to what you can prove and throw out all the metaphysical part of the narrative because what you get is, is something that turns out being... And when you look at other religions that way, which is also what the Enlightenment gave us, 
uh, as when government looks at religion like that, like suspicious of the superstition and all that, and they reduce it down to uh, to kind of child's mentality, then you treat religion in the world the way our government has treated it, and it has not been in very helpful ways. I think we're ridiculously out of time. Yes, Jim. Let me make a pitch for a book. Okay. By Richard T. Hughes. Okay visiting scholar at Lipscomb who's just published within the last month a book called Christian America mm. and the Kingdom of God mm. and they are juxtaposed okay. throughout this book. Yeah. That, that yeah, that's a that's a great yeah great pitch of those two things together. Another book I failed to mention was John Meacham who's our own uh, he lives here in Nashville now or at least part time. John Meacham uh, who wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Andrew Jackson. His work on Jefferson is is really good and fair, a fair treatment. It's called Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power. It's probably with the best modern, uh, best biography of Jefferson in the last 30 years. Anyway, what other comments or questions while we're out of time? <laughs> That's ridiculous. This is a ridiculous man to talk about. And I, I didn't even get past 1777, you know, in terms of the timeline. Uh, and and we again we didn't talk about Jefferson and uh, slavery, and plantation Virginia and slavery. You know, one thing he had to wrestle with too is the uh, which we wrestled with here is the uh, Muslim influence. Yes. House, what they were doing to the United States. Barbary pilot, uh, pirates. Yeah. He drew a line. Right. Said, no, we're not going to put up with it. Right. Anymore. Right. That's right. Jefferson and the Barbary. Pirates, yeah, he he. Uh, Jefferson owned a Koran. Jefferson read the Koran. Like he he, <laughs> as Jefferson would, he understood the motivation of the muscle man, as they called them at that time. Uh, another whole another thing is Jefferson's pacifism. Uh, Jefferson was as close to a pacifist in the eight, late 18th century, early 19th century as you could probably get in terms of a political figure. Uh, the whole Embargo Act of 1807, 1808 toward the end of his administration was an, an effort uh, to, to not go to war with England. First of all, he thought it would be ruinous in terms of expense, but he, it, war was always his last resort uh, as it played out. And of course that was a failure and resulted you know, eventually in the War of 1812. But, uh, and it was the most unpopular thing he did as president, um, but it was his effort to try to keep us out of bloodshed. Um, but any, yeah, and then there's slavery. <laughs> so, yeah, it, any any other <laughs> comments or questions? Ironic thing, he died the same day as uh, John Adams, right? 1826, July 4th. Right. Yeah, uh, they both died within hours of one another. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Next week is our last class. I think the plan is for Woodard to end with uh, Karl Marx and Frederick Nietzsche. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Jefferson is easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can barrel. What can the church learn? <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. One of Nietzsche's favorite quotes to me is a long obedience in the same direction, which yeah. Eugene Peterson, Christian, right. borrowed for his commentary. On the songs of ascent. Yeah. The latter part of the song. He, he's told he's, he's 
Yeah, I could get with Marks before Nietzsche. Come by record low next week. Yeah. <laughs> Be me, you, and Woodard. Yeah. And Jerry. Jerry's not afraid. Unafraid, unabashed. Thank y'all for counting and singing.